Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, Episode 116, War in the East. Last time, with the North now in nationalist hands, Franco gathered an army to charge at the capital, his fifth attempt. But before his attack could be launched, the Republicans had gathered their own army and were about to attempt to push out west from the capital, the idea being to cut the nationalist-held territory in half. But then, as Franco launched his attack first, the Republicans had to use their offensive army to create a diversion, which they did east of the capital, at the provincial capital of Teruel. The plan worked. However, Franco used much of his attacking force and other units to punish the upstart Republicans for trying to take any part of his territory, no matter how small or insignificant. With the help of German and Italian air power, again, the Republicans quickly lost what they had gained and paid a heavy price for it, losing 60,000 men to Franco's 40,000. Neither side could afford such losses, but more so for the Republicans. With its future bleak, the Republic decided to reopen a path to France to receive more supplies from Russia, though Stalin was already starting to cut back, having read the writing on the wall. Prime Minister Negrin's only other hope was that the remaining Republican Navy would do something to affect the war along the East Coast. Either way, Franco's attention was drawn to northeastern Spain. The job to make certain that the Republican Navy remained ineffectual was given to Admiral Francisco de Morena, based at Palma de Mallorca, on the largest island. There, he would coordinate with the Italian Navy and Air Force, who pretty much made the island their own. The Admiral's job was to make sure supplies did not get through and that the coastal cities remained hunkered down and thus unable to send out any forces. His main targets were to be Barcelona and Valencia. And yet, in March of 1938, the heretofore subdued Republican Navy would surprise the Nationalists and the world. Knowing that De Morena could not be allowed time and peace to establish his base, the Republican Navy sent out a raiding force of several torpedo boats, two cruisers, and nine destroyers on March 5th. However, coming at them, although they knew nothing of the looming threat, was a nationalist fleet protecting a convoy. Around the merchant ships were three nationalist cruisers, three destroyers, and two mine layers. The two fleets met just after midnight at 1 a.m. on March 6th, or rather, bumped into each other. Fortunately for the Republicans, three of their destroyers spotted the Ballarus, the flagship, first, and immediately launched several torpedoes at her. As the flagship did not evade, it was struck multiple times and sank soon after. There were few survivors and 726 men lost, including Admiral Vierna, the fleet commander. Considering the inactivity of the Republican vessels to this point, this was a major victory. However, the Nationalist ships only became more guarded in the future, and their dominance of Spain's east coast did not change. In other words, this victory was too little 
too late. With this bright but short-lived clash done, it was time to get back to winning the overall war, and that was Franco's focus. Though the details are not known, whether it was German advice or having learned a lesson, the dictator had decided against sending his reconstituted army of the maneuver at the capital. Instead, he would wisely attempt to peel away Catalonia from its Republican cause. Not only would this close the door to France for good, but as the area was currently where Madrid was getting most of its manpower and industry and housing its government, if it could be taken, then what was left of Republican Spain would wither and die. It wasn't sexy or instantaneous, but it would work over time. And that seemed to be Franco's priority, having lost so much previously in trying to rush at the capital. And now that a campaign had been decided upon, the advantages of dictatorship were about to make themselves known. For one, the Republicans had convinced themselves, because it was to their advantage, that Franco would once again, now that the Winter Battle of Teruel was over, come at the capital, through Guadalajara, to the northeast of Madrid. This despite being told otherwise by their spies. Next, as the Republicans were still physically recovering from Teruel, they assumed so too were the Nationalist troops, which was true enough, but when a dictator says, move out or be shot, the men get up and move. To be sure, Franco's officers were equally motivated by him to get things underway. As such, just two weeks after the Battle of Teruel, General Davila's chief of staff, General Vigon had put the finishing touches on his plans and had given out everyone's jumping-off points. The army of maneuver, consisting of 150,000 men, some 27 divisions, were stationed starting near the French border on the south bank of the Ebro River and were lined up roughly due south to a point just above the recently retaken Teruel. Besides this massive amount of men, Davia would have 700 guns and 600 aircraft of German, Italian, and Spanish pilots. With such advantages, the offensive, which started on March 9th, commenced with an overwhelming ground and aerial bombardment. By the time the Nationalist infantry made contact with parts of the defensive line, those individuals were barely able to stand up. Yet, it was worse for others. After the shelling, they had to contend with the tanks of Von Thomas. Again, the defenders were unable to resist. Time would show that, in this battle, the attackers would lose the least amount of men to date. To show how effective the pre-bombardment was, when the Nationalist troops came upon the shock defenders, in most instances, all Franco's men had to do was to walk up to their opponents and run them through with their bayonets, which they did in large numbers. And yet, instead of honestly assessing these first clashes by saying their men were ill-matched in terms of artillery and air power, General Walter, the communist Pole commanding the 35th International Brigade, blamed the losses on defeatist elements and 5th columnist agents. Typical Soviet misinformation serving its own purpose. 
And weakening themselves even further, the defenders still believed, after seeing for themselves the massive men coming at them, that the main attack would still be launched at Guadalajara. Hence, no reinforcements were sent here. General Juan Yagüe's Moroccans, stationed just right of center of this attack, went the farthest initially, traveling some 36 kilometers or 22 miles, assisted by tanks, on the first day. The opposing 44th Division before them crumbled and were soon running pell-mell. It didn't help that the more experienced men who had participated at Teruel had not yet been resupplied whereas the new recruits, though fully equipped, ran away as soon as the enemy was spotted. On General Yagüe's right, Belchite, the town recently captured by the Republicans, fell to Carlist units on day two of the offensive, March 10th. Up and down the line, whenever enough defenders stood their ground and formed a line, it was quickly and ruthlessly crushed by enemy artillery and air power. On March 10th alone, the Condor Legion sent every one of its Heinkel 111s, Dornier's 17s, and Heinkel 51s to strike at enemy airfields. Their success on that day ended up being their greatest achievement to date. With Belchite retaken, Yahweh and his men, now backed by German tanks from the group Drone and the 88mm guns of the Condor Legion, pushed on unconcerned about their flanks. No one was stopping to oppose them. The attackers practically raced to Caspe, about 70 kilometers or 43 miles to the east. Incredibly, during this debacle, the Republicans found time to fight with their communist advisors. Few men trusted these Soviet officers anymore, and incredible rumors went around that anyone who wasn't a member of the Communist Party wouldn't be helped if wounded or resupplied. This infighting went all the way up the chain of command. The way the offensive played out, the nationalist far-right flank gained the most, the soonest, having captured its part of central Aragon by March 22nd. The center part of the attack line took a little longer, but was equally successful by April 1st. This left the nationalist far-left flank closest to the French border to come in third, but not unimpressively so, by capturing some 60 miles or 96 kilometers east by mid-April. But it would only be Yagüe's men on the right who would make it to the coast, by taking a 40-mile or 64-kilometer-wide section near Veranos. Back in the center, by March 23rd, Yagoy's men had reached the outskirts of Lerida, a large city along the road to Barcelona, some 65 miles or 104 kilometers away. On that same day, the bombing of Lerida was ordered to soften it up for occupation. The nationalists only met the city to be a way stop on their way to the coast. The Republicans could only hope that this would not be the case. The only time the defenders got any kind of reprieve was when the attackers stopped to rest. However, that did not mean the German and Italians above stopped bombing. After one such rest, the attackers pushed their way into Lerida on April 3rd, 
Indeed, it seemed that the coast was their next destination. However, to the south, near the far right flank of the attackers, at the town of Tortosa, Lister's 11th Division held their own. Hopefully, this would be the beginning of a serious defense. Back in the north, just left of center of the attack, the town and reservoir of Tremp fell, which held the hydroelectric plants that powered Barcelona. The various plants slowed, and power was reduced going to Barcelona. Its steam plants there were restarted to try to compensate. As stated, on the attacker's far right flank, the Mediterranean had been reached on April 15th. Franco had cut his enemy's territory in twain, as they had planned to do to him before the Battle of Teruel. There, General Alonso Vega wetted his fingers in the water of the Mediterranean and crossed himself. Their great crusade, Franco's crusade, seemed almost complete. But now that the far right had achieved its aims, it was time for the center and far left to do the same, thus bringing all of Catalonia under nationalist control. But word soon came back to Franco that fighting that close to the French border would cause anxiety in Paris. Surely there would be mobilization across the border, and it would only take one slight misunderstanding to have Spaniards and French soldiers shooting at each other. What to do? And yet Paris was already anxious, due to Hitler's bloodless coups, so much so that the border was reopened. Supplies that had been building up were now allowed across, and those Republican forces that were still resisting now had food and ammunition. Franco would eventually order the left flank to commence its attacks and even go along the French border, but further Spanish territory to the east would not be taken. Still, Barcelona was now vulnerable. Its ability to supply the rest of Republican-controlled Spain was now gone, as its land routes had been cut. Barcelona was now isolated. It was also dealing with the refugees from the Aragon Front and other areas. Namely, some one million additional souls had to be taken care of, and yet many of them weren't. The locals had already been suffering, and now... This only became worse. Long lines of injured women and children waiting for food grew longer, with less food given for all the waiting. Not unexpectedly, diseases of all kinds broke out. To compensate, the women who could kept rabbits and chickens on their balconies. Cats started to disappear, and pots were filled up with dirt to plant vegetables. Pigeons ever a headache for large cities, also became scarce. But it would be a lie to say that the local politicians also suffered. Somehow, they were finding ways to keep their plates full most nights. But to make it worse for those cut off from Madrid, around-the-clock bombing began on March 16th, ordered by Admiral Francisco de Moreno, based at Palma de Mallorca. Barcelona had no anti-aircraft batteries, and what fighters the Republicans had 
made little difference. Soon, there were 1,000 people lying dead in the provincial capital, with double that number injured. During one bombing raid, a bomb hit an explosive truck, which created a much larger explosion. Soon rumors were rife that Mussolini was working on a super bomb. This pleased El Duce. Ciano, his foreign minister and son-in-law, wrote in his diary that his leader was pleased by the fact that the Italians had managed to provoke horror by their aggression instead of complacency with their mandolins. This will send up our stock in Germany, where they love total and ruthless war. Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, Episode 117, The Republic Strikes Back. Last time, by mid-April of 1938, the Nationalists had captured central Catalonia in an impressive sweep of military might. It didn't hurt their cause that the Republican forces were unprepared, exhausted, ill-equipped, and fighting amongst themselves. But either way, what remained of Republican Catalonia was now cut off from the capital. So it will come as no surprise that by early spring of 1938, that many Republicans were bereft of any enthusiasm for continuing the war. Perhaps it was time to reach out to the other side to see if any compromise was possible. In fact, there had been peace overtures from some Republicans since October of 1936. But at the time, the belief, the hope of victory was strong on both sides. But now, in April of 1938, the war had become personal. It was no longer victory for victory's sake, but to crush those who had been so cruel and to pay back that harshness with even greater cruelty. But this desire did not change the fact that the people who supported Madrid were tired, tired of death, of starvation, of being bombed, of forgetting what life had been like before the uprising. To be sure, the people in Franco's controlled areas felt the same, but he didn't have to listen to them. By now, what was left of free Catalonia had its central government moved to Barcelona. It also held Prime Minister Negrin and his cabinet. But the locals knew this would only bring more nationalist attention upon them, which only increased their dread of what was to come. However, the people were also angry at France and Great Britain, as they had not supported the Republican cause. This resentment would not disappear quickly. As the Republican non-communists battled with their Soviet advisors as to how best proceed, Prime Minister Negrin went to Paris. This was on March 12th, as the Aragon Offensive was beginning to wind down. There, Negrin met with Blum, Deladier, and others. The Spanish leader asked for help, active help, in the form of five divisions and 150 aircraft. The French leaders had already been told by their military attaché in Spain, 
Colonel Morrell of the current military situation and that Madrid really needed 300 aircraft if the nationalists were to be checked in northeastern Spain. Like Franco a few years ago, Negrin was willing to take whatever military aid was offered to him by these two countries, if only to get those powers toe in the door, for once they were in, it would be almost impossible to pull out. However, the French had their own concerns. On the very same day Negrin reached Paris, Hitler announced his Anschluss with Austria, effectively annexing the smaller country. For France to join in a war with Germany on the opposing side, even in Spain, would be to open a military Pandora's box, and the end result being, who could tell? That was more than Paris could agree to. The best Negrin could get was the opening of the border, as we have seen, to allow weapons and goods to be sent south. Negrin returned home and held a cabinet meeting on March 16th, but before it got underway, Negrin pulled aside and asked Minister of Defense Prieto and José Gural of the Foreign Office to support him in continuing the war. The meeting was held, and the decision seemed to go Negrin's way. But on the next day, President Azania, presenting his more dour view, then asked Prieto to speak. The man did so and seemed to have forgotten his promise to Negrin. He spoke of the sorry state of the People's Army, of its inevitable destruction, and their need to end this war. He claimed to have spoken to several high-ranking officers, and they agreed with his military assessment. His speech ended with the proposal of freezing all assets abroad to help the Spanish people in the near future. During all this, Negrin sat there stunned by the betrayal, albeit an honest assessment. During this meeting, there was another wrinkle. The communists had gathered a large crowd outside the palace. The people were demanding that the war continue because, as bad as things were, it would be much more so under Franco. How the people really felt was less clear. Those in the crowd were good communists and following orders. Furthermore, the crowd wanted all defeatist officials fired. President Azania then left the room, went to the balcony, and told the crowd the war would continue. The discussion, it seemed, was over. And yet, on March 29th, Prieto met with Negrin. Prieto again stated that the war was lost and that, in his opinion, the Republic would fall. Negrin was shocked. He later told a confidant, Now I didn't know whether to tell my driver to take me home or to the frontier. That's how frightful Prieto's report was. Still, this had to be dealt with if the war was to continue. Negrin told Prieto that he could no longer be the Minister of Defense with such an outlook. Perhaps it would be best if he was transferred to a minor post. But Prieto refused, which meant he would have to leave the government. The communists had been trying to oust this man for a while now, so they scored another victory. 
With the Minister of Defense removed, Negrin was obligated to tell President Azania of this current crisis. The President reacted by calling another cabinet meeting at the palace. There he told his audience that winning through military action did not seem possible. Also, that he was considering a government that acknowledged Franco's gains by assembling one of capitulation, possibly to be led by the pragmatic Prieto. Negrin immediately shot back that he still believed a victory was possible. The communist José Díaz backed the prime minister. This left Azania's hands tied. He asked Negrin to form a new government. The hope was that this government would recreate the popular front, that it would excite the people to resist the nationalists. In this vein, Negrin would take for himself the Ministry of Defense, while remaining Prime Minister. But to stymie criticism, no additional communists would be brought into the cabinet. This seemed to be Stalin's desire as well as the Soviet leader became more and more concerned with the antics of Japan and Nazi Germany. However, most of these second-tier positions would be held by Stalin's men. With the new government formed, Madrid's main goal, or hope rather, continued to be to reach some kind of agreement with France and or Great Britain. As this signaled that the war would continue, the communists kept their leading field commands through Juan Modesto, Enrique Lister, Valentin Gonzalez, and General Walter and the like. The communists already controlled the Air Force and Tank Corps. So, Negrin was still in control and wanted to pursue the war, but even he realized that any major military decision had to be agreed to by the communists. Indeed, at this time, a report was sent back to Stalin that the Spanish communists should take over the whole apparatus of the Ministry of Defense and the whole of the army. But this was further than Stalin was willing to go. The optics, to use a modern phrase, would look bad. Getting back to the war, with the battle at Teruel and half of Catalonia having been lost, the Republican troops needed time to rest and regroup, which meant that if Franco's forces continued to push in the northeast, there seemed little to stop them. As for help from Great Britain, Neville Chamberlain was now in charge, and his policy of appeasement, of tempting Mussolini away from Hitler, let Rome and Berlin know that little help for Republican Spain would come from this corner. The new British government signed a pact with fascist Italy called the Anglo-Italian Agreements of 1938, or the Easter Accords, in March. The British believed they were maintaining the existing world order and keeping Mussolini from signing a separate pact with Hitler. But in regards to Spain, it meant that Rome could keep its troops in the fighting until the war was over. Hitler, ignoring all such limitations, would do as he saw fit. Negrin reacted to this series of agreements by drawing up his own 13 points. It was written by the Spanish communists and was to be the basis of a caretaker government that would hold free elections. Problem was, Franco would not agree 
to any of its provisions, nor would any of the communist advisors from Russia. So Nagrin's manifesto was immediately null and void. Exactly what was Nagrin hoping to achieve is unclear. However, he believed that he was the man to pull it off. Perhaps he hoped the Western powers would finally stand beside Spain, that they would stand up for democracy. And yet, if Britain would not rise to the occasion, and they would not, then neither would France. And if they both remained silent, so too would the United States. Then Negrin convinced himself that Franco's troops were equally weary, and if he could achieve one more military victory, then the nationalists would come to the negotiating table. But contrasting this point of view, Franco, as we have seen, halted his advance to Barcelona, and no one could get a straight answer out of him as to why, or if they did, they chose not to believe it. Franco was still wary of France and its possible desire to annex Catalonia, which could only mean that his soldiers would eventually clash with French troops, which would create a two-front war. But Franco was wrong. France did not wish to take northeastern Spain, but merely to protect its border. Yet no one could talk the dictator out of his own conclusion. It's probably closer to the truth to say that Franco stopped his own advance because he wanted a drawn-out war, if it gave him complete control, as in the time he needed to crush all enemies, Republican or Nationalist. In other words, better a longer war where he could obtain a complete victory versus a shorter war, which would mean possible concessions, to end it. Still, the Germans urged Franco to finish the thing. The German minister of war ordered General Volkmann, the German representative in Spain, to persuade the Cadillo to take Barcelona. But the dictator said no. Instead, he would use his army of maneuver to push south-southwest from the coastal area his latest advance had just captured. His next target would be Valencia. If this port city to the south of Barcelona could be taken, then the nationalist corridor to the sea would be widened, which gave Franco more options, and further isolated the Catalonians and any desires the French had for truly assisting Madrid. To say that this offensive was a mistake is to care that the war was prolonged, as was the suffering. But in that regard to Franco, no mistake was being made. As for those in Catalonia, they would get a reprieve and receive goods from across the French border, though not enough to threaten Franco's hold on central Catalonia. So in that light, pushing south could still not be considered a military blunder by the nationalist leader. On April 25th, just eight days after Franco's Carlist units reached the sea, the push towards Valencia commenced. The three main forces would be General José Valera's Army Corps of Castile, General Antonio Aranda's Galician troops, and General Valino's forces. For the first two days, the three columns advanced in order to give themselves more room to deploy their men. Then the forces split into three columns proper, 
Valera's men pushed on from the recently retaken Teruel. Aranda's men advanced along the coast, which left Valino's men in between these two flanks. This advance, now with a wider front, continued on for another two days. But then heavy rains came that not only stopped the men and the vehicles, but the nationalist air power as well. Not until May 4th was the attack resumed. The nationalists moved forward, but it was slow and costly. Supplies from France helped the defenders, especially the Soviet Super Moscow I-16 Type 10 fighters, which held four machine guns, and some 40 Grumman FF fighters, and anti-aircraft guns that beleaguered the Italian and German pilots. And the Republicans had learned from their painful experiences of being bombed by the fascist allies. Their trench system in the area had been improved, their bunkers were more secure, and their communication lines were better protected. The result being, the Nationalists were able to advance, but lost thousands of men in doing so. Valino's advance along the coast was the most successful, and on June 13th, Castellon, some 25 miles or 40 kilometers from Valencia, was taken. The next day, Villarreal was added to the list of occupied cities. Further inland, progress was slower. The good news was that with Castellon taken, troops and supplies could be shipped in, versus crossing overland. Still, by this time, Franco's generals advised the Cadillo to give up the attack. Too much time was being taken. Too many lives were being lost. Whereas Catalonia in its entirety, could have been theirs by now. But Franco ignored this advice and ordered the assault to continue. Making it more difficult, the Nationalists had no airfield near the front, and besides the Condor Legion, was exhausted, so was pulled back to rest. They and the Italians had served as Franco's tip of the spear for most of the war. And he, Franco, was now getting a glimpse of how it would have progressed all along without their assistance. But then Mussolini came to Franco's rescue with 6,000 more troops, more fighters, and more bombers. And Franco added four divisions of General Jose Sachoca's Turia Corps. This gave the attackers some 125,000 men roughly equal to that of the defenders. On July 1st, the Nationalist leader ordered the attack to be renewed once again, and what's more, ordered that Valencia be taken by July 25th, the Feast of St. James the Apostle, patron saint of Spain. On July 5th, General Valino moved out from the subdued Castellon, but didn't get very far as Colonel Gustavo Dern and General Menendez used their rested Republican troops to exact a heavy toll for such a maneuver. It was then when Franco had the front's 900 guns and 400 bombers focus on this part of the defensive line for the next 10 days. Then that part of the line, which had stood so valiantly, cracked. This allowed Soljanka's and Valera's corps 
along with the newly arrived Italians, to advance some 60 miles, or 96 kilometers, on a 20-mile or 32-kilometer front. This seemed to be the beginning of a staggering victory in the south, but then Franco's troops ran into the XYZ line, a series of well-entrenched dugouts along a line of heights that could not be outflanked. From July 18th to the 23rd, the Nationalists bashed themselves against this line. It was bombed and assaulted by infantry, but did not break. On July 23rd, Franco had the attack halted in order to come up with a new plan. But by then, the Nationalists had lost some 20,000 men, and the Republicans, only 5,000. The Republicans had finally incorporated painfully learned lessons into their defense, but the question was, was it too late in a larger sense? The fighting in the South wasn't the only Nationalist operation at the time. In the West, along the westernmost area held by the Republicans, some 110 miles or 177 kilometers southwest of Madrid, General Cuepo de Llano launched an attack from his headquarters to cut off a Republican salient. His five divisions and cavalry broke through a line held by inexperienced men. On July 23rd, three towns were taken and the enemy troops furthest west were cut off from help. But two days later, this offensive was halted, and the one trying to take Valencia in the south was halted, as the Republicans in Catalonia, having been allowed to rest and rearm, launched a major offensive of their own to retake northeastern Spain. Franco called on all of his generals to donate men to stop this attack. If he figured out he had made a mistake in not finishing off Catalonia, he didn't admit it. Still, it seemed as if this battle, just after the second anniversary of the coup d'etat, might end up determining the entire war. As Franco had been trying to capture Valencia in the southeast and reduce Republican territory in the west, the politicians, soldiers, and people of Catalonia began to recover. Those shattered military units that had been pushed back early in their year were reforged. Protecting them as they were rebuilt was the river Segre to the west and the Ebro to the south. To be sure, the enemy had troops just on the other side of these waterways, but Franco would not let them attack. The Catalonians and other Republican troops used the 18,000 tons of war material recently arrived from France to equip themselves as they rested. But the current amount of men under arms trapped in southeastern Spain would not be enough if a major attack was to be launched to not only stay in the war, but hopefully to relieve pressure on Valencia to the south. This meant calling up recent graduates and some before they finished various military schools. Before too long, 16-year-old boys stood beside middle-aged men in ranks and most held weapons that had recently come over from France. Still, this was not enough, so some nationalist POWs were offered the chance to join, which was preferable to sitting in a cell, being mistreated by the angry locals. Also, skilled technicians were incorporated 
as they had nothing better to do, as the hydroelectric plants, which sent energy for production, was now in Franco's possession. The one major flaw in this rearming of new recruits was that most of the supplies from the French border were for the Republican warplanes or machine gun companies. So instead of a surplus of rifles, the new small arms merely replaced what had been lost during the Aragon Offensive. It seemed that Prime Minister Negrin was only focused on creating the illusion of a strong force, rather than the real thing. That's because, backed by the Spanish communists, he hoped to improve his negotiating position by a limited offensive and then reach out to Franco. Again, his assessment has to be questioned, as not only Franco had not changed his mind about achieving an all-out victory, but Great Britain was still determined not to get involved. Moreover, Europe's attention, in general, was now transfixed on Hitler's aggressive overtures towards Czechoslovakia. Negrin's fantasy did not end with scoring a great military victory to then begin negotiations with Franco. He also believed that the nationalist corridor to the sea, just above Valencia, could be closed, and the two halves of Republican Spain be rejoined. But to make this leap of faith even more unlikely, the French, over concerns with Nazi Germany, once again closed its border with Spain. So whatever was lost with Negrin's offensive would most likely not be replaced. To the credit of the communists who supported Negrin, this Battle of the Ebro would have at its disposal practically all the armor, artillery, and warplanes still owned by the Republic. General Juan Modesto would be in overall command, and under him, with the V Corps, would be Lister, the 15th Corps, under the 26-year-old Taguena. On the far right flank, closest to the French border, would be the 12th Corps, which would mostly act as a diversion and make sure the main attack below it was not hit from the north. Along the meandering Ebro River between Fayon and Cherta, the waterway curves, like between the 12 and 6 o'clock position on the face of a clock. There the main assault would cross and hopefully slam into the nationalists unawares. Two forces would comprise the main attack. On the right would be the 15th Corps with Targuena, and on the left would be Lister with his 5th Corps. Hard upon the right attacking force, the 42nd Division would cross as well, but as covered would be mostly a feint. As for the attack's left flank, that would be covered by the French 14th International Brigade, yet they were further south of the main attack to hopefully confuse the nationalists. Yet if things went very well, the French would then turn to the southeast and head for the coast. Perhaps they would be a part of the closing of the nationalist corridor to the sea. In all, some 80,000 men were to be involved in this attack. However, they would only have some 150 guns. And of their anti-aircraft ammunition, most of it was defective. This was known by some of the officers, but was kept to themselves for reasons of morale. 
Of course, with this build-up and placement of Republican forces, things were noticed. Right across the Ebro River was the Nationalist 50th Division, led by Colonel Luis Campos Guareta. His headquarters was at Gandesa, just behind and south of the bend in the river. Behind him in reserve was the 13th Division, and on the right, stationed at Certa and in a line to the sea, was the 105th Division. All told, there were about 40,000 men in the area. As reports of enemy troop movement started getting back to Yagüe, the Nationalist commander, he sent up reconnaissance planes the next day, which verified the reports. However, the high command, including Franco, simply could not credit the enemy with the ability to refit, reorganize, and then launch an attack. The truth was, they did all this, and much more. For one week before the Republican attack began, the men had been practicing with rafts and pontoon bridges upon every body of water near them, and even some of this made it back to Franco by deserters. But again, the Cadillo only told Yagüe to remain alert. In the early morning hours of July 25th, Republican commandos quietly crossed the river and met up with locals who had already given them information on the location of the enemy sentries. These men were mostly asleep, which allowed the commandos to get in close and dispatch them with their knives. With this done, lines were attached to points along the shore, which allowed the assault boats to begin to cross. There were some 90 boats in all, and each one could carry 10 men. Enough men were crossing to establish a beachhead, but the majority of the six divisions to cross waited for the 12 pontoon bridges to be completed. During this early morning period, further south, almost along the coast, the French 14th International Brigade crossed a section of the Ebro in front of them. However, their fate was different. The element of surprise was lost early on, and the riflemen of the 105th Division opened up as the men were crossing. Within 24 hours, some 1,200 men were killed or drowned. A few made it across, but were now trapped with no help expected. Before the first day was done, July 25th, the Republican troops had captured some 4,000 men of the 50th Division. Before the second day was over, the Republicans would hold some 800 square kilometers on the Nationalist side of the river. The Republicans continued to advance, now making for the 50th Division's headquarters. And though Colonel Luis Campos Guareta may have started to become nervous, Yagüey remained cool. After all, he remembered the Republic's mistakes at Brunete and Belchite of not moving forward until each and every section along the line was taken. With that in mind, Yagüey ordered Baron's 13th Division, the one in reserve, to double-time it to make for Gandesa. If that could be held, then there was no further worry about the Republicans continuing their advance. They would, instead, obsess over this one point. Baron force-marched his men the 50 kilometers or 31 miles necessary to make the trip. Some of his men died in the summer sun. 
but the transfer was made by the early morning of July 26th. When Franco heard of the offensive, he reacted, or overreacted, in his typical manner. Not one inch of his territory was to be lost to the enemy. With that in mind, as we have seen, the advance on Valencia in the south was halted. Eight of those divisions were to turn around and head north. The Condor Legion, the Nationalist Air Force, and the Italian Air Force were ordered to immediately engage the enemy, to stop their advance, and to destroy the pontoon bridges to cut off any further reinforcements. That afternoon of the first day of fighting, some 143 Nationalist planes made for the bridges. Those that were the most effective were the recently arrived Stuka dive bombers. However, because of Berlin's paranoia, only six were sent to Spain, and only two were allowed to be used at any one time. And these always were given large escorts. Not that it mattered, as the Republican Air Force did not put in an appearance. Still, the last thing the Luftwaffe wanted was for a Stuka to be lost and have its parts sent back to Moscow for duplication. Franco also used Mother Nature to turn the tide of battle. After consulting with the engineers who promised that the industry of Barcelona would not be harmed, the dams at Tremp and Camassara in the Pyrenees were opened. The resulting floods destroyed the pontoon bridges, which ended up needing to be rebuilt every two days anyway because of the bombing. But this meant that the Republican troops advancing only had a handful of tanks to support them. The rest could not be risked by crossing the Ebro. As the sun rose on July 27th, Modesto ordered what few T-26 tanks he had to attack the enemy headquarters at Gandesa. True, the Republican Air Force had not been seen, and there would be no other tanks coming in the future. But if Negrin's plan was to work, then the men of free Spain would have to strike now. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. So, sorry this is late, but as you can tell, um, my voice is not great. Got really sick, lost my voice for a couple of days. And just a word to the wise, when someone at your work says they're too invaluable and they have to come in no matter how sick they are, and then they end up spreading their germs to 40% of where you work and it wipes out the place, just let them know that they're not that invaluable. Okay? Even doctors. Take care, everyone.